Hey, welcome. Is this already going? Maybe not. Um, so, uh, Matt told me last time as we were preparing that uh, I talk a little too much. Um, and in a nice way. Uh, whereas my friend said, uh, sometimes it's like uh, you're trying to get us to uh, drink from a fire hydrant. And uh, that, was, that was very nice. So I'll try to slow down a little bit. I love this material, and I am so passionate about it. And so um, although I usually am a man of a uh, few words, uh, when it comes to material that I really care about, it's hard for me uh, to not go long. But I will try. Uh, let me open with um, a little quote from uh, Dorothy Sayre's book, uh, Creed or Chaos. So she's someone who is a contemporary of C.S. Lewis, um, a brilliant writer and thinker. Uh, so here's what she has to say about, yeah, if you have a seat beside you, if you will, uh, yeah, got one here. Yeah, we got a few. Yeah, raise your hand. Yeah, raise them up if you got space. All right, good. Here's what Dorothy Sayer says. We are constantly assured that the churches are empty because we insist too much upon doctrine. Dull dogma, as people call it. The fact is the precise opposite. It is the neglect of doctrine that makes for dullness. The Christian faith is the most exciting, listen for this word, drama, that ever staggered the imagination of man. And the dogma is the drama. The drama is summarized quite clearly in the creeds of the church. And if we think it dull, it is because we either have never really read those amazing documents or have recited them so often and so mechanically as to have lost all sense of their meaning. I think she is right on. I didn't encounter um, some of the creeds until uh, much later in my studies, and it was so life-giving. Uh, it helped so many things click for me. Um, and so uh, for some of you, uh, maybe we can do that in here, introduce you to something you haven't seen before or heard before or gone deep in, and for others it might be, I know that so well, and maybe what you'll discover is, um, is seeing it again for the first time uh, might uh, bring to life what it has to offer. Uh, last semester, I opened with uh, the Lord's Prayer, and I, I walked us through the Lord's Prayer, and I talked about how that had been so formative in my life, reciting the Lord's Prayer on a regular basis, and how um, saying that, Father who art in heaven, and going through that had, had shaped me as it shaped how I see myself and as I see other, how I see others. Uh, through this long 10, 15 year repetitive uh, process. So I thought maybe to connect a little bit with what, what we've done and where we're going, uh, that uh, I might ask us to open up with the Lord's Prayer this morning. And because there are so many versions, uh, we'll try to do the, uh, the old school KJV because, uh, because we know the, the trespasses and the vines. And, uh, and yeah, it, it's familiar. So if you'll pray the Lord's Prayer with me and the... Uh, old KJV way. Um, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Powerful to hear a uh, hundred people praying that beautiful prayer. Uh, hopefully everyone has a handout. If not, uh, my lovely assistant here. Uh, 
can, uh, can connect to that with you. Yes. Yeah, raise your hand if, if you need one. This is going to be confusing if he's my lovely assistant and not my wife. But, all right, there we go. Yeah, don't, don't hand that task over to anyone else. Honey. Um, so uh, last semester, we looked at what uh, Matt has named the uh, Strahan Bullseye, uh, which, uh, which hopefully that, that might stick, and it'll go down next to the Wesleyan Quadrilateral. Um, so uh, one of the things we had, had been thinking about is how uh, Christians can sometimes talk past one another and maybe get a little anxious when we, we disagree and we wonder, can we disagree here? Uh, is, this a, is this something where... Uh, we have to disfellowship on these issues, and so I suggested that there are some things that are central to Christian faith, some things that flow from what's central that are necessary. So we might think of something that's central being that God is creator. One of the necessary things that flows from that is that creation is good and that God is separate from his creation. One of the debatable things we looked at is the nature of uh, the mechanics of creation, young earth, old earth, evolution, and so forth. What would be outside would be to deny that God is creator. Uh, so we, we, we thought about how there's these different categories. Uh, and then the other piece of that is how do we determine what falls into those different categories? And here is where uh, you see the four pieces. Um, there's the biblical plot line, the clear and repeated teachings of scripture, great tradition, and uh, the idea that all of scripture leads to love of God and love of neighbor. So last semester we looked at the biblical plot line. Um, and part of our, our recognition is, is we need to enter this conversation with humility. Uh, you don't just jump in and decide what's central, necessary, debatable, and outside without being steeped in the biblical plot line. Uh, but the other piece of that is to understand this and to navigate this well, we need to know something about the great tradition. And that's where we are in this class. So last semester, biblical plot line. This semester, great tradition. If you're wondering what I mean by great tradition, um, I'll get to more details on that, but the, the briefly, it's something like C.S. Lewis might refer to as mere Christianity. Uh, those, those beliefs, those ideas, those practices that have always been a part of the church across centuries, across continents, across denominations. So this semester, as we look at particularly the Apostles' Creed, and I'm about to talk more about that in a second, uh, we'll think, as we did last semester, about how uh, the, this concise statement of Christian faith offers us that set of lenses uh, that shaped how we see ourselves, how we see God, how we see the world, uh, and how we find ourselves in that world. So, Matt and Lauren, before uh, I move on, anything? You just talked about the great tradition, right? Mm -hmm. And that's, that's kind of a term of art and theology, with a capital G and a capital yeah. T. And you just equated it to mere Christianity. Can it also be equated to the term orthodoxy? Is it, is it another way of understanding what what we mean in this class by orthodoxy? Um, yeah, I think uh, someone wrote a book, Mere Orthodoxy. I think it's a, it's, um, a condensed uh, orthodoxy. Yeah, the, the kind of beliefs uh, that span the churches. Lauren? No? All right. Um, so let's get into the creed then. I, on, your, on your handout, that was something else I was told is I need to give a handout. Um, you'll see underneath the schedule, which we'll talk about in a bit, the Apostles' Creed. Um, and just take a minute and read that. Some of you may be very familiar with it, some of you may not. But before I start talking about it, at least go ahead and read it. Um, so I'll take a, give you about a minute and then I'll say more. 
So as we think about discussing um, the Apostles' Creed in the Church of Christ setting, um, I, I think that we, we bring a history to, a, um, to our view of creeds that tends to be wary of something that's creedal because it's seen as uh, maybe adding to Scripture or perhaps being divisive. Um, and so uh, you hear things like, no creed but the Bible. Um, and what I want to say uh, is that... that the Apostles' Creed um, need not be guilty of those two things and can actually serve the Church of Christ well. So let me give a few reasons why I think that's the case, why the Apostles' Creed is neither really adding to Scripture nor something that's divisive. Uh, first, um, as many have noted, it's less uh, the Creed is less something that adds to Scripture and more of a condensed um, kind of high points or foundational points of Scripture. Uh, so if you read that, you probably realized, oh, that almost sounds like biblical plot line in short, or um, it's got biblical language throughout. Uh, so N.T. Wright, um, I believe he refers to the Apostles' Creed as something like a suitcase uh, for Scripture. So it's condensed, you can carry it around with you, but it also can be something that can be opened and unpacked and more can come out of it. So first thing, we might think of it less as adding to Scripture and more being um, something that's condensed, hitting the high points. Second, um, if we think about our Church of Christ heritage, Alexander Campbell, so one of the founders of the Restoration Movement, guessing many of you are familiar with him. So you have Barton Stone, Alexander Campbell, a couple hundred years ago. Uh, they wanted to unite the churches uh, by getting rid of creeds and agreeing on what's in the Bible. And yet, Alexander Campbell says, the Apostles' Creed is still good. So here he is in the Millennial Harbinger. Is that, is that the, the way you say it? We never objected to a creed, properly so-called. We have a creed. An apostolic creed, a luminous, comprehensive, soul-stirring creed. Um, among the creeds now extant in all Christendom, it is most worthy of the name because it is a statement of facts and not of dogmata, opinions, theories, or doctrines. In other words, the Apostles' Creed's okay. It's not this divisive thing. It's basically um, uh, the things that all Christians believe on. It's basic Christianity. So. Not so much adding to scripture as it is a summary of the high points. Even in our restoration heritage, uh, those who are trying to bring the churches together and who are wary of the division of creeds, someone like Campbell could say, but this doesn't count here. Um, and then one of the great kind of godfathers of Church of Christ scholarship, Everett Ferguson, just wrote a book called The Rule of Faith, um, and where he examines these early statements that, the, uh, that Christians have where they said something like, we have this rule of faith that has always guided us, that's been handed down from the apostles. So, uh, for a brief example, here is Roger Olson's book that I'll be um, working with some this semester, Counterfeit Christianity. Um, and one of the ideas he's countering is this idea that orthodoxy, or statements like the Apostles' Creed, came along a lot later, and folks like Constantine and, and you know, the, the great popes just like enforced this upon uh, the church when in fact, uh, something like the Apostles' Creed was already floating around really early. So um, he gives statements from both Irenaeus, so around 177, and Tertullian, around 200, and those names might not mean anything, but they represent two of our earliest Christian writers, um, writing with different languages in different regions, at a time when the church was kind of being persecuted, so you didn't have this church hierarchy that was telling everybody what to think. But this is kind of an example of, the, of what was on the ground across regions, across languages, early in the church. And Irenaeus can say something like, the church, 
though dispersed throughout the whole world, even to the ends of the earth, has received from the apostles and their disciples this faith. She believes in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. Sounds very much like what you have on your page. Tertullian. Now with regard to this rule of faith, that we may know this and acknowledge what it is which we defend, it is, you must know, that which prescribes the belief that there is one God and that he is none other than the creator of the world. It goes on to say things that are like what you see in the Apostles' Creed. So the Apostles' Creed kind of represents a formalization of what was already um, in uh, the earliest church. So, it's not so much um, adding to Scripture as it is a helpful summary of Scripture. It's in our heritage, not only in restoration heritage, but in the kind of DNA of the church. Um, We like to be early church people. This is early church stuff. Um, Fourth, uh, when the church finally kind of got around and, and was able to collect um, the, what we call now the New Testament. Remember Paul's writing these letters, the 27 books of the New Testament didn't just fall compiled together. As the church was, was gathering um, the Gospels and Acts and Paul's letters and John, as they were gathering it together, uh, part of what was guiding them to discern, is this Holy Scripture? Was, does this conform to that rule of faith that has been passed down? Uh, so that was, a, that was one way of them saying, nope, this is Gnostic, nope, this is heresy. Yes, this is something that represents the apostles. Um, and even once they decided on, and through, through kind of communal discernment, this is Holy Scripture. They didn't say, and now we can push aside the rule of faith. Instead they said, and now the rule of faith will continue to help guide how we read this. And so when people come along and they want to read Scripture and force it into a new context, they say, no, no, we know from the rule that this is the right way to read these kinds of Scriptures. So it's not adding to Scripture. It's more of a summary. It's in the DNA of the early church of the rest, and of the Restoration Movement, and the church saw that it had ongoing usefulness to guide how we read Scripture. You ever been in a conversation with someone you can both point to the same Scripture and come to completely different readings of it? Yeah, the early church recognized that, and they said, we need a rule. Yes, there are places we can read differently, but there are places where we cannot read differently and still say it's Christian. Um, and then fifth, as I alluded to earlier, uh, why I don't think this is divisive, not only because early on everyone recognized it, not only because early on someone like Irenaeus can say, even illiterate barbarians know this, um, but this has been something for 2,000 years that has crossed cultures and continents, languages, denominations, and nearly all churches uh, can say, yes, we believe this stuff. Uh, so that's why we're, or this is what we're looking at. This is part of the reason I think it matters. And maybe like Dorothy Sayre says, um, there is something powerful and profound, uh, and it's either we um, have forgotten to look deeply at it, or we're so familiar with it we've forgotten just how beautiful it is. Uh, Matt, Lauren, before we keep moving forward, um, would you like to be baptized? Rebaptized. Rebaptized. I think it's helpful to think of this as a summary of scripture, a, a kind of condensed version of what we've talked about as the meta narrative. And I also think it's really important that we remember that scripture does remain the authority that we're testing this against as well, in terms of our understanding of it. Um, so there was something like a rule of faith operative in the formation of the scriptural canon. And yet, we do want to say the apostolic witness that is condensed in scripture itself remains the touchstone for even how we're translating the creeds, if that makes sense. So I think what I tell you know my students when we come across a scripture that's really puzzling about 
well, does this mean we're predestined, or does this, does this mean, like, what do we mean by predestination, or we get into the weeds on these arguments, um, I say, well, one thing we need to do is read this in light of the whole of Scripture, rather than getting down and just to the details here. Mm-hmm. So something like the Apostles' Creed helps us do that in a sort of shorthand way, which is really nice. It's like, wait, what are the basic norms we always want to remember? They're condensed for us here in so many ways. So that's what's, I think, so useful about the Creed. It's not that we replace Scripture with this, right? It's that this helps us kind of bring Scripture to life in ways that we might miss otherwise. Mm-hmm. Oh, I imagine many of you remember who were in here when... I, we were beginning to sketch this idea out, and Matt came along, and he wrote all these arrows that connected everything, and and that's picked up on the, uh, this should be the Strands, Melser, White, Hearn, the Bullseye, but but one of the things Lauren's talking about is, it's not as though we understand the, the great tradition separate from the plot line or these things, but they all are kind of mutually informing. We have to admit there's going to be some sort of circularity to all this. There's no escaping that. Um, but we understand the great tradition best when we understand in light of Scripture. We understand Scripture best when we read it in light of the great tradition. It's, it's a little bit um, of this back and forth thing, but, but that's how it's always been done, and, and that's kind of where we're going with it. Let me give it to Matt, and then I'll open up to a couple of questions. Yeah, let me come at the same idea from a slightly different direction, because I think it's easy to be discomfited a little bit by, by what you suggested, um, because I think what I heard you say is that in some ways the creed, or something like the creed, is actually what helps the church put the canon together. In other words, the, the creed, or something like it, pre-existed the scriptures as we know them, and helped us decide that this is the shape our our canon of holy scripture is going to be because, mm-hmm. you know, this, in other words, these are the parameters yeah. by which we're going to look at what has been written. Mm-hmm. and what we're going to accept as Scripture. Yeah, so if we think of how... We take for granted that we just have a printed Bible. You know, we can go into any hotel room, open the drawer, and there's a printed Bible. But when when these letters that are the New Testament were first distributed, I mean, it was so hard to copy and so expensive and so difficult. So it's not like every church had their 66 books. A church might have a couple things. And so to help the churches navigate that, you see Irenaeus and Tertullian saying... It's like a little mini catechism. These are the things we believe. These are the things that guide us. Um, And so I wouldn't say it was so much before Scripture. It was already being somewhat informed by Scripture in the apostolic tradition. But but it was it was floating around before you had the twenty seven books all perfectly collected together. Um, So those two processes were kind of working side by side. So the creed is circulating by the year two hundred. Or something like it? Something like early versions of it, yeah. So the rule of faith is what we would call it. And then the, the final canonization of the New Testament happens at some point, like about It gets recognized. It gets recognized then, but it was essentially functioning already. But the canon was basically functioning pretty fairly closed much before that. Okay. So part of what you have there is, is in the 300s is the church saying, this is what we've already recognized. It's kind of the... As persecution has lifted, the church can more easily come together and give their stamp of approval on what was basically already functioning, as opposed to what you might get from the conspiracy theorist or Dan Brown who's going to say something like, you know, that you have all these things that all the church is recognizing, and then Constantine came along and said, no, it's only going to be these half. 
In fact, Constantine was opposed to some of the things that the church said, no, this is orthodoxy. You can't force us to believe this. Um, so, yeah, we have some rewritten history that that um, conspiracy theorist. Yeah. Oh, yes, that's all three of them. It's interesting, on Otter Creek's website, there's a section, What We Believe, mm-hmm. which is somewhat a longer version. Yeah. The Apostles Creed, maybe a couple of yeah. topics, but, but we don't recite that in church mm-hmm. or and I, know, I wasn't even aware of it. I remember at the elders class, we had some little statement. I thought, oh, that sounds kind of like a creed. Uh, yeah. 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 So it, it, it fits our DNA as well, maybe. Yeah, I have a lot of Campbellian anti-creedalism DNA. Uh-huh. And I think it's always important to remember that creeds were written to exclude. They were never written to include. They were always written to say, if you can't say this, you're not a Christian. They were... They were crafted to combat heresy. That was a piece of it. I don't know if that's the whole of it. There was, I think, a, um, a guidance piece maybe as well that went with it, or a, a catechetical piece kind of yeah. passing down. I think part of Campbell's anti-creedalism was more like the denominational creeds. You've got the Westminster Confession that's saying, we got it all right. Or, you know, you have these other denominations over here saying, this is, and it's going far beyond mere Christianity that you get in the Apostles' Creed. And maybe Lauren Lauren knows this history better than I do. Would you say the creeds are... I, I think you're right that there's a formative piece happening to them. It's about teaching people what are our confessions. I think you're also right that there is an exclusionary purpose. And I think that's something we need to talk about in this class. Like, when is it okay to have an exclusionary purpose? Not that we want to say, you're not a real Christian and we can't have fellowship with you if you can't say this. But... What are the things we're going to say we agree upon as being core to our faith? And if you're not on board with this, then you might think about labeling yourself something other than a Christian. Yeah. So there's there's a both and going yeah. on here. Yeah. But uh, I think I, I appreciate in the Stone Campbell heritage the the move away from that as a sign of our righteousness or as a sign of you can't fellowship with us or you know. So I think it's also that's also worth sort of keep bearing in mind. I don't think we should be uncritically. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then I, I saw a hand way back here. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. All right. So, if you look at the creed and you look at scripture that is like in Corinthians two, which is like a song mm-hmm. that was potentially maybe sung around that time, how do you balance those two? If, if the Apostles' Creed had been canonized. Would we feel that those two things on the board? Like, how do we how do we know and how do we kind of find comfort in the fact that this was created around the same time, so that even if it, you know within the span of twenty to hundred years, this could have been scripture, and we would have been perfectly okay and perfectly believing that it was there. And so I, I guess I'm just trying to say, is some of this fear about mm-hmm. creeds? Mainly because we just don't understand when it was pre- when it was written. Maybe, uh, and and I, this is probably Lauren's going to know this better than I do. There's some somewhat of a gap. We only have limited resources to know what was exactly happening in the early church. But you get language like in First Corinthians 15, that which was handed down from the beginning. You know, the first importance that Christ died and was raised. And so you get these like mini creedal statements already. And it seems as though um, something like the rule of faith is taking many many such things, the best stuff, and bringing it together. But but I don't know 
I think we like to, we want the scripture to be, um, I don't know, we're wary of it in a way that the early church didn't seem wary of it. It was more like, this is, this is the wisdom that has always guided us. Of course it's going to keep guiding us. I, I, that's what I gather. Josh, I think in an American context, one of the things that makes that tends to make us wary of creeds, I think, goes back to what was happening in Great Britain in the 16th, 17th centuries during the Protestant Reformation, during the, the changes within the Anglican Church that was dividing into a more, a more radical puritanical branch and then even the nonconformists. And so much of English social life um, was directly affected Mm-hmm. by political constraints that involved for example if you wanted to hold an office in the English government you had to be an Anglican you had to attend church as many times a year if you didn't you had to pay a pretty big fine you had to say the creed if you didn't say mm-hmm. the creed and and that became really violent and savage and creeds became as George mentioned exclusionary and, and literally dangerous to say or not to say. And I think because so much of our American religious heritage um, came over from that place at that time, creeds make us much, much edgier, yeah. perhaps, than some other Europeans. I read a book, Democratization of American Christianity, maybe, and it, another piece of that was, and the kind of heightened individualism, we can figure it out all ourselves, the, it was something of a throwing off tradition. We don't need tradition. We don't need that to tell us what to do. We can figure it out on our own. And now we have a, you know, 10,000 denominations because we've all figured it out on our own. In the United States, what, part of what makes it unique is, is we threw off the notion of a state church. That, that was one of the most radical things about the American political revolution. And, and throwing off the idea that there is one church, that there is an official church, also, also throws out, like you said, the idea that anybody needs a creed to bind us together. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's that's part of what's built into our American Christian yeah. Protestant DNA. Hmm. Yeah. I think our Stone Campbell tradition of throwing off trees and being Christians only mm-hmm. morphed into only Christians. Oh yeah. We built a tree within our non creed <laughs> Oh, absolutely. So it's, it's easy to call them both sides of the bed. Yeah, yeah. I'm sure it wouldn't be too hard to come up with what our unspoken creed was. And it would end up being maybe divisive. Can you tell what is wrapped up in the term Catholic? Uh, well, we'll go through this line by line, but essentially we're not saying capital R, capital C, Roman Catholic. We're saying universal church. So what has been true across, but we don't really use the language of Catholic to mean universal. So, yeah, we're not subscribing to Roman Catholicism here uh, as much as universal. Oh, uh, yes, one uh, super, super quick. Uh-huh. As a Roman Catholic, as I grew up in Roman Catholic, yeah. we recited this every day. I look at it as a reminder to ground us mm-hmm. into what we believe. I thought that was really interesting. Protestants um, and Presbyterians, Catholics used, don't go into he descended into hell. Mm-hmm. Pres, um, Presbyterians do, which I thought was interesting. Yeah. So they kind of did their own little thing. I think this is a precursor to the digital age culturally because we all li- listen to sound bites, so I think that's a great, I think that's what it's written so now. And the last thing is I spent two hours with my daughter's boyfriend, who's a non-believer, searching, trying to help gently move mm-hmm. this because he was, there's Allah, there's this, thing. Yeah. 
and the creed, if I you know, I kind of skirted around that while, but I thought that was that's really I kept looking at it. I told him what we believe and why we believe. Mm -hmm. The creed was a great little uh, bullet point from a yeah. marketing perspective. That's how we speak, yeah, yeah. and that's how people learn now. So I wonder if we look at putting a creed-ish, no offense, Mr. Campbell or whatever all that's about. But what do we believe to ground us and root us back into what the heck do we believe? It's okay to say what we believe. Mm -hmm. Why is that exclusionary? Maybe back in the day, I don't know. Yeah. And to be able to, I love the idea of being able to walk someone through and say, this is why it's beautiful. Kind of as Dorothy Sayers says, this is, this is why it's so exciting. Not just to say it, but here's what that's pointing to. Um, all right, Steve, and then I'll, I'll hit a couple other things. And One of the things that you alluded to, and I think it's, it's so easy to forget, a lot of our heritage and everything else is based on the printing press. Mm -hmm. We have, I don't know, I've probably got 20 Bibles in my house, and when you have a society, especially Roman society, that maybe 5% of the population mm -hmm. can read and write, uh, creeds become incredibly important. Um, yeah. So we, we look at this from the background of, again, everybody has a Bible in their house, they can individually interpret it. Mm -hmm. It's in the language that suits them. Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And, and that's, uh, that's a, an assumption sometimes it's so easy to forget is that's a relatively new kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Let me, um, let me talk about where we're going and a couple other things, and then I'll open up to a few more questions. Um, so as you see in the outline, uh, every other week, so starting February 10th and then the 24th, we'll take a line from the Creed and we'll unpack that, talk about... Um, what the ideas are, how scripture helps us illuminate those lines from the creed, and uh, continue that theme of, of these can be lenses that we wear. What happens when we put on the lenses and see the world through the idea that God is Father, that He is Almighty, that He is Creator? And then on the, uh, the alternate weeks, uh, we'll look at heterodoxy, kind of the alternative to that. What happens when you put on lenses and you uh, see the world as though there is no God? or you see the world in a dualistic framework, or you see the world uh, through pantheistic lenses. Uh, and part of what um, we're hoping to get at in here is that it's not just, oh, we have these kind of random beliefs, and you can take them or leave them, but these beliefs are tied to a certain way of seeing the world and being in the world, a certain kind of ethic, a uh, certain hope, um, that, uh, that when you take those away, there are some, yeah, important ramifications um, that go with that. Um, and lastly, uh, something I'd like us to do in this class is, is to, um, we say, or some of us say, um, we might say the pledge or sing the national anthem. And you see these, these moves happening uh, in schools or at sporting events, um, where, uh, saying the pledge or singing the national anthem has this communal effect of, of bringing people together uh, around a common vision and, and instead of just saying it alone in your room, saying it together or singing it together has a way of, of shaping the community around a certain kind of devotion and commitment. Well, I think we might consider the Lord's Prayer and the Apostles' Creed to be something like the church's Pledge of Allegiance, the church's national anthem, where we come together as a group of people and say, this is what we believe, this is what we pledge our allegiance to, this is where our hearts and our lives are wholly devoted. Um, and it has a different effect when we say it alone. It's good to say alone, 
but, but there is a profound effect that happens when we say something and we confess this as a community. Uh, so not only do I want us to be saying the Lord's Prayer as a community in this class, but I'd also like us to be uh, confessing the Apostles' Creed together. So um, if you're comfortable, I'm going to lead us in confessing the Creed, and then uh, we'll have uh, maybe ten minutes for, uh, for questions. So I did good. I didn't talk too much uh, did good, today. <laughs> Proud of me, Dad. Uh, uh, all right, so let's confess this together. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. Amen. All right. So, Matt, do you want to facilitate for us? Well, let me make one comment just to start with. One of the things we hear as shepherds at Otter Creek, um, always, and this is probably true of shepherds everywhere, especially in the, the current century that we're living in, um, is a question like, well, well, are we just a church where anything goes? And that comes up especially at Otter Creek, because Otter Creek has always been an especially um, diverse congregation. It attracts people who don't fit and more homogenous places and kind of find this to be a place where they can be ornery and, and find people that they can enjoy being ornery with. But that is a serious question. Um, and it certainly, as speaking as one of the shepherds, this is not a church where anything goes. Um, the Apostles' Creed, I think as, as Josh has laid it out, is what every Christian should know and understand because it... It draws a circle around what we believe. This is what's true. Anything that contradicts what the Apostles' Creed gives us is out of bounds for us as believers. Because this is what unites all Christians, not only here at Otter Creek, but down yonder at Belmont United Methodist probably, at the Nazarene Church across the river, um, at, the, at the cathedral downtown. This is what holds Christians together. I also like what Josh said about the effect of, the physical effect of, of being together with people and saying these words aloud. And I think your analogy was, was pretty apt to what you can feel sometimes when you say the Pledge of Allegiance together or um, the National Anthem when you sing that together. I think for Christians, this is, this is that moment. This is where we say, in spite of what we disagree with, this is what makes us a body. This is what makes us... Holy, this is, this is who we are. And so speaking as a shepherd, I, what I want you to hear from, from me and from the, representing the elders is that we really endorse this idea that there are things that we fundamentally believe. This is not a church where anything goes, although sometimes it may seem a little chaotic. And the, understanding the creed is how we as elders, how Christians everywhere, have figured out what can go and what can't go. It's a unifying thing. In the world we live in, 
as you may have noticed when we did the January teaching series, unity is a problem. It's, it's, much, more, it's much more difficult to stay together in a church than it is to divide and start other churches to leave and get mad. And unity is what shepherds are all about. How do we keep ourselves united? The sermon today by those young people was all about staying united in the faith. And so I think this is a really important class for asking about that question. What is it that unites us? Okay, that's enough for me. What kind of questions has today's discussion brought for you? Questions or comments? So my question is kind of, I guess, broadly asking about um, use of creeds. So I know that the Apostles' Creed is widely accepted as the oldest Christian creed. But then we have other ones that are pretty widely accepted, like the Nicene Creed, for example. Um, and I like the idea of talking about kind of the difference between those sorts of creeds and like denominational creeds where <clears throat> they're less widely accepted. But where would you say is a good point to like, I don't know, I guess a good stopping point, so to speak, of like which creeds are really good and really helpful? Because I even know that, you know, there were a bunch of Christian councils that tried to make creeds, and not every denomination accepts all of those councils, even though they're typically grouped together. So, how, how do you kind of navigate those things? Um, well, I think that's one reason why it's really important that we keep Scripture primary, because we get we can get lost amongst all the creedal options, and that's again one I, one point of wisdom I think in our heritage in the Stone Campbell movement. Um, I also think that there's something good to be gained from studying the history as a whole. So I actually, I tend to think of the Nicene faith as actually, uh, there's the Trinitarian theology reflected there that is, I think, really central to what we're confessing as well. We could do a whole class on that, right? And then there's Chalcedonian formulas about Christology and what are we going to say there? And then there's all the stuff that we are kind of implicit creeds in Church of Christ circles, for example, about baptism, believer's baptism. And so we may think a lot of those things are also central. So I think we could use the creed, the Apostles' Creed is helpful as a lens for thinking about what are these essentials of our faith, but it's not comprehensive. I think it's a good way to, and we'll probably bring in other things that we think are central in the discussion of these points. So I tend to think Creeds from different denominations can be useful as a lens for getting into the study, getting into the discussion, but we get where it's not good to just stop there. It's a good place to think about leading to wider conversation. I like the idea of using it as a way to kind of a shorthand for having a conversation with someone about, well, what is the Christian confession? You know, like, yeah, and I, I couple the apostles and Nicene pretty closely together as far as they're fairly ecumenical, with the Nicene Creed having a little bit of question in some of the, the kind of Eastern uh, or Coptic churches. But overall, Apostles of Nicene both work. The Nicene's got so much kind of, not clunky is the wrong word, but it's got some some uh, technical language that can just, it's not a good entry point for a Church of Christ. Uh, it's great. The Nicene Creed's great, but when you get into my the true line, uh, it just, it's a lot. It can be overwhelming. I think we have time for one more. So is 
words the Billy Oak play? Yeah, there's some controversy about how to word the emanation of the spirit. And there is division, but it's one of those things that scholars say has actually been, um, there's a narrative around that about their, it being divisive that's not really true. So, but with all of these, there, there's something political happening around every creed. Every time there's a creedal formation, someone's being excluded, someone's mad, someone wasn't invited to the party, right? Um, so it's good to know that history. And we'll try to, I think we should try to look at that as well. We shouldn't romanticize this and think it's all, it all just, just like we shouldn't romanticize the process that produced the text. And yet, I do think the canonization process of the text is a beautiful process that speaks to uh, the spirit working in the lives of the early believers to I think it's time to stop. We finished right on time. If you have other questions, we'll stick around. But thanks very much for being here.